Bonjour, hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Miigwech for joining us. Native Lights is, at its core, a place for Native folks to tell their stories. Each week, we have wonderful conversations with great guests from a whole lot of different backgrounds. We talk with them about their gifts and how they share those gifts with their community. It all centers around the big point of purpose in our lives. And I can't wait to continue amplifying Native voices today. That's right. Today, we are going to reshare the great work of Michael Lavender and Deb Foster and their hard work helping to create Minnaoski Aindayang, a supportive housing project for American Indian youth. Here we go. Today's episode is about what happens when two visionaries work on one thing. Yep. We got Deb Foster, who is an executive director of Indayang, and Mike Lavender, who's a partner of the DSGW Architects. It's true they work together, but I don't think they'd actually call themselves visionaries. <laughs> no, but maybe they'd call each other visionaries. You, you got me there. You got me there. <laughs> <laughs> so however you describe them, these two were among the leaders responsible for Minoski Indayang. That's the beautiful new building on University Avenue in St. Paul, with apartments for 42 formerly homeless Native young adults. It got a lot of attention when it opened last winter. So I heard that the grand opening was really well attended by hundreds of people, like well-wishers, public officials, donors, community members. So our producer, Lori Stern, was there recording, and she's in the studio here with us right now. Welcome. Hey guys, I want to get right to the tape. This is a person I met as I was leaving and she was just looking up at the building. Well, I see honesty, humility, truth. And then if we see on the other side, it looks like it says respect, love, and wisdom. That's so awesome. I love to see that. And then they got the little intricate flower designs in there well. And then this teepee here as the main entrance, because that's home, so. It's awesome, I love it. My name's Molly John, I work for PPL. So I'm based out of the South Minneapolis site, but I'm also Native American myself, so this is very close to my heart. And I remember when the groundbreaking happened and I was like, oh, that's a long time off. And here we are tonight, and I'm like, it's so beautiful. I love that. I love that the symbolism is on the outside of the building, so again, like, we're still here as Native people, and I think it's important to showcase that. So this grand opening was a beginning, but it was also an end of sorts. Yeah, kind of like the same point on a circle mm. or a hoop, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. So it was a triumphant end to a process that had begun years earlier when Deb Foster realized what her community needed most. Everything I do is all about the fact that I'm Native and that I'm a Anishinaabe, and what I can do with that is so important to me now. So no one who knows Deb Foster would doubt it that everything she does is about serving the Native community. But Deb Foster, being a Anishinaabe, was not always front and center. So we'll let producer Lori Stern tell us some more. Well, so I really have, I've known Deb Foster for a while, and I wanted to know her better. And she'll talk your ear off about the mission and the youth she serves and the nonprofit she runs. But I wasn't sure she'd talk about herself. And um, I think you and the listeners will be really glad that she decided to open up. 
So even though they are efficiency, they're nice and roomy. Of course, we started with a tour. One of the 42 apartments, one of the big hangout rooms each floor has, the circular space for ceremony, the lower level workshop for making things. And that room is designed specifically for kids to learn how to make their own regalia, do beadwork. Um, there's also a separate room for soaking hides. Deb has given more tours than she can count. And on one hand, it feels like, oh, yes, well, here's the, you know, the medicine garden space. And here's the, where we have our sweat lodge. And here's our cultural activities teaching center. And as you can see, we have sewing machines. Now, Deb and I are sitting in her third floor office at a different building, Enda Young's emergency shelter on Portland Avenue in St. Paul. Da 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 da, you know. And then afterwards, every time there's this moment of, oh, good Lord, <laughs> this is just exactly what our kids need, you know, and what our communities need. Deb's office is high ceilinged and spacious with bay windows that face south. There are dream catchers hanging from the ceiling and eagles on the walls everywhere you look in paintings, ceramics, and photographs. And Deb says almost everything was a gift. was gifted, so it's a very special place for me. And it needs to be because uh, I spend a lot of time here. So Deb Foster's path to Anda Young was not straight. She grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. Her dad, who was not Native, had his own business. And her mother, who was Anishinaabe, helped run the study abroad program at the University of Wisconsin. All throughout the year, we would head up to the res, St. Croix, and uh, we would participate in powwows and ceremony and, and you know, and moccasins were made for me. I was named. I remember sitting, years of sitting and listening to my relatives and my elders tell stories. So I was very em embraced with my culture and my teachings and loved it. But somewhere halfway in the car, on the halfway home, it was like somebody switched a flip. And all of a sudden it went back to, just don't talk about it. Don't acknowledge it. Just go to school. Do well in school. Do what you're supposed to do. So I lived in two different worlds, just really back to back. Because that was the world where my mom believed that it was in her and our best interest to not acknowledge that because that was also back in, you know, the 60s and 70s when AIM came to be and, you know, and there was a lot of turmoil going on and, and action and advocacy and some great work going on. But I think in my mom's eyes, because of how she grew up, it was kind of like, nope, don't look this way. Just stay out of that. It was as though a person couldn't be both Native and accomplished. Deb says her mom was extremely strict, especially about school. And so it was very much just um, really focused on what you need to do to kind of get out of that Native world and do what you need to do to be successful and get away from it. When Deb left home for college, like a lot of young people who first taste freedom in college, she might have overdone it a bit. She failed Psychology 101, but eventually got a degree in education. Then she figured out when she did her practicum, she didn't like teaching. 
She did like counseling, though, and found a job working with young people at a residential treatment center in Eau Claire. She was on her path. She moved to the Twin Cities, but the more she worked with young people, the more she realized counseling wasn't enough. Uh, you know, the holidays would roll around, and so they would go home and spend some time with their families, and then they would come back, and they would be just completely destroyed. And I thought, okay, it doesn't make any sense to work with just these young people without working with the entire family. So Deb went back to school and got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and started working with the YMCA as a family therapist, then membership director, and then facilities manager, running a swimming pool and fitness center. That was not what she'd signed up for. So when the Lindale Neighborhood Association needed a new leader, Deb agreed to become executive director. From there, she moved to the Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women, now called Violence Free Minnesota. Deb was in charge of fundraising and communication, and her Native identity took a backseat. Everybody knew I was Native. I didn't have that fear that my mom had, you know, because I grew up very safe being Native. But it wasn't um, something that was first and foremost First and foremost was my experience and my education and what what could I bring to the table to the next, you know, to the next thing. I was doing a lot of what my mom had taught me. But in her new job, Deb Foster crossed paths with other leaders of color, and they decided to form a coalition. That powerful new network led Deb to her current position. The position of executive director opened up at the Ng Dai Young Center, and I had been an executive director. I had no desire to be an executive director ever again. So I was quite hesitant, but I was told to just just go to the interview. You can always say no. I blinked, and um, I ended up here. But now that I have been here over 10 years, I now realize that we all have a path. I mean, we can wander within that path, but there's a path for each of us. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're resharing the great work of Michael Lavadur and Deb Foster and their hard work helping create Minnooski Indayang, a supportive housing project for Native youth. Uh, what we do is we uh, gift our clients a, a quilt. In the old days, we would give each other hides. And when you give somebody hides, it was like giving them shelter and warmth to survive the winter. And we don't do that anymore, but we give each other quilts and blankets. And so that's why we give these things um, to our clients. Um, it's a special thing that we do to say thank you, McWitch, for trusting us with being your architect. We wanted to give this to you, so why don't we turn that around and we'll give it to Deb. All of our partners were there. All of our supporters were there. So many people got up and spoke and said great things and wonderful things that have been involved from the get-go. And I'm just so pleased that it turned out. So that last scene you heard was from the grand opening at Minoshki Andayang. I wish you both could have been there that night. The community room was standing room only. It was packed. People were smiling and there were some tears. There was such a palpable sense of we did it and there's hope. That's awesome. 
Like, what an amazing accomplishment. And so many people celebrating. I mean, it wasn't just Deb. It was Melanie Benjamin, and there were people from Midwakanton, and, you know, that there were had been financial contributions, mm-hmm. but you just got the sense that this room full of people had just been rooting for this building to get built mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, you know, sounds like Deb didn't love all her jobs equally, but now she sees that they all you know, kind of converged and led up to what she was meant to do. And now I realize that all of that was just simply giving me the experience that I needed to bring to the table here. It all came together, you know, when at the time when you're wandering through, you think, why am I getting pulled this direction? And why am I, you know, taking on this job? It's, you know, and oh, now I'm in the right place. And then you you know, I, you end up, and I ended up here, realizing that this is where I was supposed to be. So, uh, so Laura, you spoke to Deb for a while, and doing my interviews and stuff with other people, I, I know that they can go long, and there's a lot of talking. So, is there anything else you'd want to share about that talk? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that, because Deb, there, there's like one person who's super important to Deb, and who has been a big inspiration to the whole project, and his name is Herb Sam. Do you know him? He's Malak's band. He is. He's mm-hmm. a pretty. He was a pretty prominent um, elder and healer. Yeah. Well, now there's a a portrait of him at in the building in the in the main meeting room of the building. Mm, that's really nice. Yeah, and his name came up a lot during the ceremony. He um, gave the building its name, Minoshki. He blessed the ground it's on, and he was a guide to the project in many ways. And as you probably know, he died just before it opened. But there really is a beautiful portrait of him that was unveiled the night of the grand opening, and it will hang in the main ceremony room. Thank you, Deb Foster, for the work you do and sharing your story with Lori and us here at Native Lights. Mm We've been talking about the people behind the beautiful new building on University Avenue in St. Paul. Yep. It's called Minoshki Eindayang, and it's a place where Native young adults can live, reconnect to culture, and get job skills. And as we mentioned earlier, I actually had the opportunity to talk with the architect behind Minoshki Eindayang. He's with the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in North Dakota. That was him presenting the star quilt to Deb Foster at the end of this first section, right? Yeah. So Mike had some very profound things to say about how buildings can be like people. I always say that buildings are like an elder um, and we give these buildings their personhood, which gives kind of, they give a healing environment. We do that in our clinics. We do a lot of clinic designs. These community buildings like this, Minoshki and Dayang are really, really where you see it really take effect. That's where my gift is is that I give of myself to my community through my skills of architecture and giving really good projects that have meaning and have soul. That's really very cool. It's like, I I love that he's recognizing the spirit of place Mm. alongside of of a building. I think that's that's a really wonderful way to put it. Yeah, that was one of the bigger points that he made is this soul of a building and that it's... Mm. It's not just a building. It's a place where people heal and get better. And yep. So the longer we talked, the more I realized 
how much of what an architect does is about relationships. Mm. And uh, that's actually how a birch tree came to rise out of the middle of the main gathering space on the first floor. Deb, Deb Foster um, has heart. Um, she, she's a constant supporter of mine. I'm a constant supporter of her. She believes in this program so much with her heart and soul that um, it, it's become a part of the design itself. She, we have this round room on the first floor, right at the main entry. And that's the Herb Sam's room. It's kind of like an art gallery, a place for people to gather quickly or whenever um, to experience the building and talk about it and experience some of the art that the, that the kids would do. She said, Mike, do you think we could put a tree in that room? And everybody at the table at that time laughed. And me being me, I'm, I'm the what if guy. Um, let's try that. Mm-hmm. I type something in and I turn my laptop around. And I said, Deb, what do you think? There's three different trees here. Which one do you want? And she's like, yay. Um, she was really happy because she had ideas and I never discounted them. I always thought, you know, that her ideas were valid and they became, and those things became really important parts to the, to the project. Did you see that birch tree? Yeah. Do you mind describing it a little bit more? Like it's alive? I don't think it's alive. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, huh? <laughs> no photosynthesis this, happening there. <laughs> it's actually this like, circular room where um, the youth go to <clears throat> talk things out, all that stuff. But the birch tree is like right in the middle and it ri- rises through the whole thing. And it's, uh, it's just a place where the youth gather and, you know, talk things out and heal. And it's, it's, it's a very calm environment. We, we, at one point in time, we talked about the front of the building looking too literal as architects, and I'm sure my peers out there who may listen to this podcast or not might say, geez, you know, Mike, you really kind of got really literal at the teepee on the outside. But one of the other indigenous principles that we practice at our firm is listening. And we went to Deb and said, you know, can we try a couple of different design elements to see if we don't, the teepee is too literal. You know, I, I, I don't want to be that architect is known as the literal teepee guy, but um, we went and tried a couple of different options. She didn't like any of them. And she said, you know what? I really like that original design that Randy Wagner kind of proposed way back when, before even the first funding cycle was done and we got denied. I really just want to stay with that. And one of our indigenous design principles is listening to the client and check your architectural ego at the door. Understand that this project is not mine. Um, we say uh, in Ojibwe, it's Oshkebius, which means helper. I'm just here as a muse, as somebody who can extract cultural information from you and put it in a 3D form mm. and so that you can use it the way that you want. So we listened to her and we said, okay, the TP design stays. And we really ran with it. And one of our designers, Chris Krager, uh, in our firm, uh, he really took it to another level. And I think it's really bold and beautiful on the outside. So I think it ended up being a good thing. So Deb is this kind of visionary and she's willing to take chances. And I think that with her persistence, I don't think that this thing would have happened. As it, it, it Logistically, trying to pull all the funding sources together and just being that strength behind it and, and, and being that, you know, that buffalo into the wind in the storm kind of thing, mm-hmm. she got it done. I don't think it would have got done without her help. Could you more specifically, like, just tell me about Parts of the design life. Yeah. Um, so on the front, we have um, two elements. We have the teepee elements uh, on in the middle of the building. And, and those represent home. 
They re represent hearth. Uh, they represent the Dakota cultures. Um, we also have what we call the, the seven totems on the exterior. And the seven totems, um, originally they were called the grandfathers because there's a seven teachings from the seven grandfathers in the Ojibwe culture, Anishinaabe culture. And we were going to have these things that look like old grandfathers on the sides of the building. And they were each, each totem was going to have when each of the seven grandfathers was going to have an associated, they gave the gift of humility, love, all these different things that they gave to the Ojibwe people. And we were going to do that. And then and people are like, I don't know if I like that uh, design, you know? So we worked with, with an indigenous, uh, a contractor who uh, is a sign manufacturer and kind of a sculptor. He's a relative of mine. Mm -hmm. And we had a meeting with him. I said, can we do something else? And in the meantime, Deb had talked to her staff and community members and said, you know, there are animals that are associated with the seven teachings. I said, great. So we came up with a new concept working with Arian Putra and Deb and myself and the contractor mm -hmm. and Chris Crager and our whole team sat down, Mandy Pant from PPL, we came up with this kind of sketch of these new totems. And that's what you see on the outside now is that love, which is one of the seven teachings. Now that love totem has the eagle on it. And so we brought four of those into the building and they're on each one of the floors now. Like the first floor is has a blue color to it on all the, all the elements, like the signage and some of the walls. And then the eagle is there. And then on the, on the fourth floor, I believe it's the buffalo. Um, which has a red color associated. So we kind of tied this thematic thing together. But on the exterior, we have the seven teachings totems, which are Ojibwe in, in nature, and then the teepees, which are Dakota in mm -hmm. nature. And we really went bold with it. I mean, you can't go along university now and not see this building, mm -hmm. especially at night. It's pretty amazing at night. It's lit up. The totems are lit up. It's just a really beautiful, bold building right here on University of the State. I think what Deb was trying to say when she said, be bold with the design, she wanted to say we are still here and, and wanted to be forefront that this is an indigenous place. Very nice. Being visible, right, mm -hmm. is very important. It's something I feel like, you know, Native community can struggle with among yeah. dominant culture. And there it is. You know, we are still here. We will be here. Um, we are still here. We will always be here. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're resharing the great work of Michael Lavadur and Deb Foster and their hard work helping create Minnooski Indayang, a supportive housing project for Native youth. Fascinating building, and Mike Lavadur is fascinating himself. His knowledge of Ojibwe culture how he goes about working with native people in a good way. It was really inspiring. And so here's one more thing from Mike Lavender about getting more natives involved in architecture, which is one of his major goals in life. Every year at the American Indian Science and Engineering Society conference, I give, I speak at a session. And the session that I talk about is why our communities need more native architects and engineers. A lot of times I'll do that alone, but I'll bring in other architects sometimes like Tammy Eagle Bull. Tammy Eagle Bull is Oglala. Um, we grew up in the same town together. Our parents knew each other. She's the very first native uh, woman architect that was licensed as an architect. So great story. So, but the problem I see on reservations is that our native kids only see certain job types. They'll see teachers at the school. 
They'll see doctors and nurses at the hospital. They'll see tribal politicians at tribal headquarters. And they'll see a lot of civil engineers because of the roads works departments and stuff and roads department. So those are the careers they choose a lot of times. And I really want to get out there and promote architecture as a career. Um, I've talked to the AIA Minnesota and AIA National about creating a indigenous-based kit that we can give to people and architects and teachers to put in the classrooms when when kids are younger to learn about careers as an architect, but not just generic, really about indigenous architects. Here's, you know, here's Tammy Eaglebill. Here's a profile on her. Here's the building she designed. I don't know how you do that, but I want to get funding to build that program kit so we can create more native architects. Um, My goal in life, I think if one of my legacies, if I had a legacy is to, to, because all these buildings are healers, right? I have one kid come up to me um, in 10, 15 years and said, I became an architect because of you or something that you did. And I've designed 50 buildings. Well, geez, those 50 buildings are a healing multiplier. How many, how many indigenous lives have those 50 buildings touched and improved? So if I can have one kid do that and I could have 10, that could be 500 buildings that are improving native lives. So I think it's a really valid STEM career. And I know ACES, my organization supports it. AICAE supports it. My firm supports it. Um, AIA National, AIA Minnesota all support these things that we need to get out there and get more kids to be considered design careers, really, not just architects. So just for clarification, those AICA, AIA organizations, these these mentioning are professional native architecture associations. I'm sure you got that. But I was curious about your reaction, you know, given your uh, experience with the science fields and things like that, how he's, you know, he wants, you know, more native youth to get into that. Sure. And, you know, I was a very brief member of ASIS, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, when I was a briefly a, what is it, like chemical engineer major. Mm. <laughs> For like three seconds. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many beautiful directions our lives can go in, right? Like culture or literature. I mean, not like those things are separate necessarily, but STEM. And there's some really cool, there's so much work that's being done um, in STEM, kind of like like what Mike is working with, going into science, but with a native viewpoint. So like, I I mean, like medicine or architecture or anything like that. If you have kind of a different perspective, I think it brings a little more richness um, into it. But I I really like how, you know, he's trying to encourage youth to um, go into STEM careers because, you know, there are so many options. I think it's just helpful to know your options. Yeah you know, overall um, yeah. to get the youth involved is uh, great because he's just perpetuating those gifts on into the next generation too. Yeah, so we'd like to thank Deb Foster and Mike Lavender for sharing their stories today. And for them bringing their visions to life. Yeah. Well, it's that time of the show where we say goodbye, where we say geekawabamin. <laughs> We didn't plan that. It just happened. 
Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you want to hear more Native folks talking about their gifts and finding their purpose, search for Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine wherever you find podcasts and find all of Minnesota Native News' content at minnesotanativenews.org.